Hello, and welcome to our latest episode of 30 for Net Zero 30, here on ESG Matters at Ashurst. I'm Anne-Marie Slot, Global Sustainability and ESG Partner here at Ashurst, and we're speaking with 30 changemakers around the globe about actions to take now to deliver on 2030 goals. Today, I'm very excited to be joined by Jeff Ovens, Managing Director, UK, Europe, and Middle East at Fulcrum Bioenergy a clean energy company pioneering the creation of renewable drop-in sustainable aviation fuel from landfill waste. Back in 2013, Jeff's been doing this a while, Jeff founded and led the first ever investment by an airline in a sustainable aviation fuel company, which has been replicated uh, many times since then. Jeff, great to see you and thank you for joining me today. Anne-Marie, thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. So maybe Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure, sure. Well, I've, I've, I'm a bit of an aviation geek. Um, I've been in aviation and aerospace now for, gosh, 20, 25 years. Um, and for probably getting on for almost half of that now, I, I've been deeply involved in uh, sustainable fuels, uh, obviously with the focus on, on aviation. Um, so that's been my, my area of focus and is indeed my passion, quite, quite frankly. Um, my my background is is engineering uh, with a with a sprinkling of commercial as well over that period of time, um, so those two those two key elements really have, have put me in a good spot to really understand the the technical and commercial challenges that that building a sustainable aviation fuel industry presents. Um, but I'm I'm happy to say that we're that we're definitely turning a corner on that now, and um, sure we can we can go into more detail. Super. And and it's interesting you say, you know, it's you, you've been at this a while. Um, you've been thinking about this a while. Uh, I think probably fair to say the, the vast majority of the public has not been hearing about it for as long as you've been thinking about it. Um, what do you think that it, that's from? What, what do you think maybe the, the biggest shift that you've seen then in this space over the last kind of 18 months, two years? Yeah, well, I mean, the, the very fact that we're having this conversation and you've kindly invited me to, to speak with you, you know, says a lot in itself um you're absolutely right it's 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 really only in the last three years or so that sustainable aviation fuel has, has started to get its share of the spotlight in decarbonization um it, it has been a frustrating time since i got involved in 2011 um there was only a handful of people in globally in in the space um, and they were mainly driven by airlines so I, I worked for an airline um, in Hong Kong for 12 years, Cathay Pacific Airways, and I, I headed up and, and developed their um, renewable jet fuel. It wasn't even called SAF then. It was called something completely different. It was called renewable jet fuel or biojet. So I, I developed their program, and there was only a handful of airlines at the time who were really pushing for it, Cathay being one, British Airways, Qantas, uh, KLM, and, and that was pretty much it, but, and Boeing and Airbus as well. Um, but in the last three years, it, it's just gone exponential in terms of its general interest. And, and most people now, most travelers who are particularly frequent flyers, understand uh, what sustainable aviation fuel is and what the benefits it, it brings to, to both aviation and their journey as well. It's great to hear about your work with Cathay. I have to say Cathay is one, is one of my favorite airlines. Um, but it's really fascinating also to hear about that progress coming from Asia. You know, a lot of people think about the energy transition. They focus quite a lot on what's happening in the West and, and what various people are doing in the EU and the US. Um, 
so so I'd, I'd love to hear how that project came about and in, in kind of that more global aspect of, of how you were looking at things. Sure. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. You know, my time at Cathay thoroughly enjoyed uh, my tenure there. And, and one of the reasons why I stayed there for so long um, was, relatively speaking, was because they have this and they still do have this very laser sharp focus on ESG. Uh, and all touch points of their business, you know, be it be it from fuel all the way to food, you know, in-flight services and meals, etc., is always with an eye on sustainability, um, and it's it's got even more so since. But as you as you allude, aviation is a global industry, and Cathay, you know, flagship international airline, they literally fly everywhere. Um, and at, at the time, there was this, you know, to go along with this this focus, there was an obvious solution to decarbonize and this is quite trailblazing for them at the time that they wanted to pursue this to the to the point of actually putting skin in the game uh rather than just signing mous or lois you know this was real money that was flowing into early stage startups um but the you know the fact remains is that the the startup despite cathay being an asia-based airline the startup that they invested in was based in california um, and the reason why is because that's where all the action is in terms of decarbonization and policy support. So it made a lot of sense for the airline to do that then. Um, that said, you know, since, since I left many, many years ago, they, they Cathay continues to, to, to advocate for a more of an Asia pack type SAF industry to grow. Uh, there, there's lots of feedstock available um, in that region of certain types. Um, you know, Hong Kong itself has a waste problem. Uh, they only have two landfills, That's I believe. True. <laughs> uh, so, you know, there's incentive there, but the policy is still missing. And that's that's one of the critical pieces that that places like Hong Kong need to, to look at. Um, mm. yeah, but, you know, further south, Singapore, they're looking at similar things and similar challenges. Um, and, you know, further north into China, the, the Chinese are doing a hell of a lot in this space. Um, and I was deeply involved with with some some of the oil majors back in the day. Um, and it's good to see that some of the work that they were doing 10 years ago is now now, come, now coming to fruition. Um, and there's a bit of irony in this, that that what really kind of, you know, made, made people laser focused on sustainable fuels for aviation or sustainable aviation fuels was COVID. Um, and the irony being that all of the aircraft were grounded, a vast majority were grounded, um, yet, you know, the focus shifted into, well, hold on a minute, you know, I'm looking out the window, there's no cars on the road, there's no contrails in the sky, the air's clean. People think, well, hold on, is this, what, what do we need to do? You know, this is an opportunity to take stock on all types of transportation um, and, and uh, you know, heavy emission type industry and see what's out there. And I think it became very quick, very obvious very quickly that most of the forms of transport, be it land or or water have options uh, available to them to decarbonize, um, you know, hydrogen, electrification, ammonia, et cetera. Um, but aviation really, particularly long haul, doesn't have any option other than to keep the fuel that it uses from a technological perspective. So the only answer really is to decarbonize the fuel that it uses. Um, and that means you can keep the infrastructure, you can keep the tanks and the hydrants at the airport and everything else that goes with it. You just change the fuel origin but the fuel itself is chemically identical so i think the penny dropped after over a decade of trying um and and here we are and there's a lot of focus there's a lot of investment um, and most importantly there's a lot of focus and momentum for governments around the world as mm. well mm. 
fascinating, really, the, the impact that COVID has had around so many aspects of sustainability, but, but particularly um, interesting that it's this, the, the, the stop of travel that's caused the biggest jump in thinking about this. And I think the other thing you you talk about, which people probably don't think about when they think about business travel and how do we come up with a solution is the entire infrastructure around travel. It's not just the plane, right? It's it's every other aspect of how an airport works and and how you get, you know, the plane from one place to another and, and refuel it and get it back again. And mm. it's a very oh. interconnected system. Absolutely. It's it's a huge, I mean, it's, you know, there's a lot of companies out there with great ideas and doing great work in alternative fuel types like hydrogen. Um, and, you know, and it should be applauded. And I definitely think there will be a role for those types of uh, propulsion in the future. But when you take a step back and you think, okay, we've got this, this aircraft that works on hydrogen, fantastic. Okay, well, now we need tanks, now we need delivery system, we need to make the hydrogen somewhere. How do we deliver it to an airport? We can't use the same pipelines. We can't have an air, a hydrogen aircraft next to a kerosene fueled aircraft. Um, and you know, to repurpose a large airport is two to three billion dollars. Mm. Um, and then you have to fly to somewhere, so that's another two to three billion dollars to do that airport. And then you need to make sure that if there's a problem halfway, you need to divert. That's another two to three million. So again, you very quickly realise that the, the cost of changing your fuel type. Um, it goes well beyond the aircraft itself and it's into the infrastructure and the supply chain. So again, you really need to see, you know, the total cost of this transition when it comes to changing fuel. And again, it leads back to the to the obvious advantages that, that SAF has, um, that you don't have to touch any of that. Um, mm. You can maintain existing infrastructure and you just focus all of the effort and the funding and the investment onto fuel production and then once you have the fuel produced and it meets the certification requirements, you know, you're off to the races. You, you just put it into the system and, and away you fly. So I guess following on from that, is there, you know, kind of one specific action? Uh, we, we like to talk about actions and, and, and deliverables here. What, you know, what do you think would really, um, really accelerate this, uh, this transformation? I know there's, there's a lot of comments in the press about, the amount of of SAF you could produce, for example, you know, is, is there an upper limit on that? And then what happens, you know, when when you don't strangely have enough landfill waste to use? But um, what, what do you think? The specific action or, or something that really could accelerate how how we're going about this? Yeah, I mean, I I touched on it briefly um, earlier on, and, and a lot of it really comes down to government policy. Um, government policy particularly for energy transition type projects and industries really is key at the at the early stage you can't expect you know private money to underpin all of the risk on a perpetual basis when there are opportunities out there today that perhaps are a lower risk and provide better mm -hmm. returns in the short to medium mm -hmm. um, so this is where the government can can step in um, and that that support from government can come in several forms you know you, you can have the early stage grants that help develop a project and take some of the risk off the table um, and then you have the longer term policy support mechanisms that you know provide for example revenue certainty or revenue support for the life of the project or at least a certain amount of project life that enables you to you know pay down pay down your debts um, and your fine and your financing so it, it really is vital that, that the policy 
is in place to underpin the business models that developers such as ourselves and others are looking to build on. And there are there are some good signs, good indications, um, some some better than others. Um, I mean, I'm sure most of your listeners will have heard of the Inflation Reduction Act in the US um, and closer to, to home here in the UK. We have a, a SAF mandate that's been proposed for 2025. Um, and then more recently, um, we have the, the EU um, mandate proposal that was that was agreed. Um, so that will also be coming into force with some very aggressive uh, ambitious targets for for SAF implementation and these are all great but no one policy is perfect um you know with, with mandate a mandate basically forces the issue but then even that might not be enough to incentivize investment so you need to ensure that down at the you know the the business model level there's that there's the there's the incentive that support the revenue and you know as you get more hours on the board you can start to you know rely less on revenues going forward and there's, there's lots of examples of that in wind and solar where it was heavily subsidized initially, um, but then you come down the cost curve and it's it's less reliant on, on subsidies. Um, but again, it, it, it's it's really important that that you know where we have the ability and the infrastructure to uh, build these facilities, um, you need to have that policy support in place. And it needs to be long-term, as I say, because short-term policy only gets you so far. It needs to be long term and to make these projects bankable. Yeah, and 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 especially with the life cycle of the you know all of the the entire industry, right? You, you you're not buying a plane for Christmas, right? It's 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 you know it's a it's a longer term investment than that. So f- fair point about that. I, you know, um, you were talking earlier about your your long term commitment to um, to trying to get all of this moving um so i i am kind of a little bit a little bit hesitant to talk about your own commitment to net zero maybe maybe it's the last you know decade and a half of your life that's been spent trying to explain to people um that that this is possible but but um any any commitments that you're you're currently focused on for yourself yeah well outside of my my wheelhouse i mean, I, I kind of think that the work that that i'm doing you know, along with with my team and, and Fulcrum and the industry as a whole um, is, a, is a significant contributor to decarbonization or defossilization, which, which is the latest term that we're using. Um, I quite like that one. Um, and but from, at a personal level, you know, I've I've I fly much less than I used to. And I think that is true for many people. Um, I, you know, I used to travel at least once a month to West Coast U.S., from the UK, and that was both tiring um, in itself with the time zones and the and the travel, but also you know energy intensive, uh, both personally and from a aircraft perspective. So mm. I think that now I travel much less, and we you know this is a good example. I could have come to see you in person, but this is a much more efficient way of doing things. Um, so we rely a lot more on 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 virtual meetings to a point um you know eventually you have to go and meet people if you really want to seal the deal um or make make progress but during these initial interactions and, and certain meetings virtual is is king um so that that's my contribution that i'd like to say was voluntary but i think that was forced upon us all and I'm, we're continuing to push that going forward um and and it's the incre- the small kind of the incremental things that that myself and my my family do you know i, I try to take more public transport when it turns up on time, um, <laughs> I, I tried to, let's not talk about the trains. 
Um, <laughs> we, uh, you know, I try to walk more. Mm. Um, it's it's the usual stuff. I don't think I'm trying to do anything that's unusual that that most people have not have not thought about. Um, but little things like turning your thermostat down in winter time or turning your thermostat up if you're on AC, depending on which way you look at it, um, to try and to try and save on that. And but anything that has you know, generally speaking, anything that has a, has a cost saving element along with mm. the emission saving element really kind of makes things easy to do, to be perfectly honest. Um, and that's where there's this, this slight, you know, opposite, opposite approach because certain decarbonizations in industry are more expensive. Um, you know, you have to spend more to get the decarbonization. So it's an interesting how on a personal level, certain things you can do to save costs have a benefit. Um, but on a you know industry level, you tend to end up spending money to make to make the benefit, which is uh, slightly ironic. Yeah, no, exactly. And it's interesting because it also, I mean, it brings back in that COVID kind of that it it, it basically made everybody feel okay to talk virtually, right? Yeah. Before there was such a reticence to that. Oh, I need you here in person mm. in order to really have those initial conversations. And you know, I think we've all learned maybe we could cut those come you know cut those half and half mm. do half of them in person and half of them virtually mm. um you know and, and you you still come generally to a good outcome um but it's it's more about that balance right and and as you say it also helps the body politic for to to not be pulling yourself around different time zones and all Absolutely. hours of the day and night yeah um so so that's all been super fascinating um Jeff, and if you could provide listeners kind of with one key takeaway, you know, maybe maybe it's around that the aviation industry, around SAF. Um, what 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 is the one thing, or maybe maybe it's around you know encouraging better government guide rails and consistency. There's rather a lot of problems with consistent government behavior across the world at the moment. Um, not just uh, not just the realm of of um, non-democratic countries anymore now it's you know kind of free for all everywhere um what what's what's your one action takeaway yeah it's it's hard to it's hard to have just the one um i, I think that there, there is a basket of, of measures that that one can take um to you know as, as a key to, or suggest as a key takeaway um but you know my, my view is that we talk about energy transition and, and it is just that it's a transition it's not it's not going to happen overnight and there's there's this this sense of urgency that we need to do something and we totally we, we do need to do something that's something that i do agree with but it is a transition so there needs to be an element of understanding an element of pragmatism that we're looking to transition from something that's been done for 100 years uh, into something entirely new and we talk about new infrastructure as an example you know producing hydrogen at commercial scale which seems to be the next best thing ever um and i have my own views on that uh, perhaps for another time <laughs> Um, but again, that's a good example. You know, things things take time, but you need to be realistic along along with it. So it's just it's just about maintaining focus. Perhaps look for the lower hanging fruit in terms of what you can what you can hit first and decarbonize before we we look at the next shiny object that looks sexy and it's a great thing to do, but it's really expensive and it's made of titanium alloy and all of it. I think if if you if you look at things that you know. Typical petrochemical production right now. Uh, there are lots of processes that you could relatively easily decarbonize uh, mm. without changing anything um, other than the fuel source. 
So there are lots of opportunities. I think it's a, it focus on the low hanging fruit first. Um, you know, get the lion's share of decarbonisation and heavy industry, and then really start to once you've nailed that, start to refocus on some of the harder to abate sectors, mm. um, or perhaps the the sectors that traditionally, like hydrogen propulsion in aviation, there's absolutely a part for it, but it's quite a long way away. It requires a lot of investment. So again, get the money where it needs to be now, but don't ignore the future because it will be here before we know it. Great, perfect, uh, perfect ending. And thank you so much. I don't, I, I, I don't think I could add anything to that. Um, thanks so much for joining us today, Jeff. Thank you. Appreciate it. It's been a pleasure. Thanks, Anna Marie. Thank you for listening to this podcast. We hope you found it worthwhile. To learn more about the issues we've just covered, please visit ashurst.com forward slash podcasts. This 30 for net zero 30 episode is just one small part of our continuing podcast series, ESG Matters at Ashurst. Make sure you don't miss any of our future episodes by subscribing via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're there, you can also listen to our other episodes and leave a rating or review. In the meantime, thanks again for listening and goodbye for now.